Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys, Director of Recruitment Leadership, and I'm recording on the 26th of October. And the date's significant, guys, because... Uh, as regular listeners will know, we like to try and stay on top and bring you variety, uh, but we have no idea of what might change when the OVR briefing is done. We've got a brand new prime minister um, who's just three days into his tenure. Um, I am, however, delighted to be joined today by Adam Pay. Welcome, Adam. Morning. Adam is a partner at Safris. And for anyone who in recruitment who is unaware of Safris, Safris is a top 20 international firm of chartered accountants um, with a a very big reputation for corporate, entrepreneurial, professional and consulting firms uh, and and dealing with their financial matters. Have I summed that up fairly, Adam? Yeah, that's that's pretty good. (laughs) Thank you for big up. um, Adam, you've been there in specialising in tax, I think now for almost 20 years, is that right? Yeah, I joined I joined Safri's in uh, goodness me in 03. So so I'm looking forward to whatever happens for the 20th anniversary next year. At my 10, 10, uh, 10 year anniversary, my boss took me out for lunch and forgot his wallet. So I had to pay. So hopefully it'll be equally, <laughs> equally good. Uh, at 20 oh, so this time there'll be a whole gang of them coming, I expect. No, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, well. Um, I got in touch with Adam having listened to one of uh, his earlier webinars and um, Adam struck me as someone that my audience, recruitment business leaders, would really appreciate because he was specific, actionable and, um, you know, some people might disagree, but I think tax is actually a really interesting subject at the moment anyway. Um, We're going to start uh, talking about valuations. We're going to move on to employee share schemes and options around exit. And time allowing, we will finish off talking about uh, EIS and SEIS. Um, So this is a must listen for anybody who owns a business, aspires to own a business, or is growing a business and thinking about uh, what that might lead to ultimately. So Adam, let's go straight in there. Um, I want to talk about one of the biggest areas that is surrounded by myths in recruitment. I meet a lot of people who've just started a business and they have some big misconceptions about valuing a recruitment business. Um, So I'd like to start there with um, what's, well, first question really, what size does a business have to be, in your experience, for there to actually be a market of buyers for it? So, so I think um, when, you, when you look at the sale value of a business, um, and, and what I'm talking about now is not tax valuation, but sort of commercial valuation on a sale, because those are, those are different things and, and done in a different way. Um, the key to there being 
real saleable value in a recruitment business or, 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 or any people business really is um, to be able to separate the value of the founder or the shareholders and what what work they generate personally and what value they um, they bring from the business itself because a buyer coming in to, to acquire a recruitment business um, they know that quite often the principal might it might be hard to retain them it might be hard to um, to, to get them to you know to stay beyond a certain period of time to protect the value of the trade and and, and then they may go and, and they may take their personal contacts and their network and their expertise with them. And, and you've got to say what's left, what, 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 what would be left for a buyer? So typically where you've got a small business, where you've got a couple of people, a few, a few people, but it's a, the, the shareholders who have the, um, who have all of the, the sort of the, the, the contacts and the, the flow of work, then quite often um, it's, it, it, it's difficult to say that there is a significant value in that business that someone might want to buy. They might, but they might be able to buy the income book, particularly if it's a business like a um, temporary uh, recruitment business where there's a steady flow of work and uh, you've got you've got an ongoing client relationships which you might be able to secure somehow or take over within your business, and that and that's a sort of that that's a sort of income book. That, that you're acquiring and so that that might be sort of turnover type valuation or a turnover type process um but if it's not that sort of business where you know for example if it's permanent recruitment where you're always out there hustling aren't you to to, to win new cases to, to that's right clocks to back to zero at the beginning yeah every month. every year you start from zero um that that's that's much harder and so what what businesses do as they grow and typically they 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 do as they grow they try to and when you've got additional levels of management so you've got founders you've got first tier management and you, then you've got staff underneath that's the sort of size where you have something which someone can buy so they can buy you know founders quite often leave um uh, uh, that would say that'd be normal i would say not always but but often the founder will leave but then you've got a next tier of management and and what you're buying is their connections their um, earning potential, um, you know, and, and, and it's once you hit a sort of um, critical mass, I would say, then you've got something that some that, that you can sell more easily. Hmm. Now, interesting what you say there, because um, number one, building a team of people to come up behind you actually has a financial value. That's what you're saying. Mm, yeah. So I know yeah. a lot of the people that I meet would accept that there's value in having other people capable of management and capable of bringing in business, but it has a financial value when it comes to a potential sale. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned there is that smaller amounts where the business relies on the owner um, are actually very difficult to sell on in reality. And I have to say from my personal experience, because I've been through and advised on a lot of, uh, of these issues, is that really sub a million EBIT, it's actually very hard to convince a buyer that you've got something sustainable with the exception that you mentioned. So I have had expressions of interest in a business that was wholly long-term temporary contract. What, what I've um, seen recently, sorry, just, just seen recently is... Um, consolidation of businesses to get a, a, a get a so small businesses you might have four or five small businesses to with e, with ebit of less than a million those those so bringing their businesses together to create a critical mass which they they then can collectively sell so 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 yes absolutely getting it getting it above that that sort of level is super helpful yeah so the aggregation of businesses can compensate for that okay so 
Um, let's just get to drill down for the benefit of listeners on how valuations happen. So from micro to medium to large, you've mentioned a, a difference between temporary and permanent businesses. So let's talk multiples and how those calculations are done if based on on your experience yeah and, and and my and my experience is mainly in the sort of five million plus level i would say just just you know full full disclosure that's the sort of the sort of level that, that, that we look at um typically typically valuations of recruitment businesses are are a multiple of a bit so that's profit but you add back depreciation interest and tax broadly um and, and then you multiply that by something, and that something depends on your business. And there are a number of different things. Uh, obviously, the higher, the better. You want a big number. Um, a big number means that your business is uh, has high growth prospects, or it is um, low risk. So, so it means that you you know the um, either the buyer thinks that the the, the earnings number will uh, will get bigger or that it will be safe for a number of years and then they can therefore pay you a number of years worth of profits uh, in one go. So historically, and things change quickly, um, recruitment businesses were, um, were somewhere between six and seven, six and eight, somewhere like that in terms of, in terms of multiples. Um, uh, permanent recruitment was lower um, because it's, as, as we said earlier, you start from zero every year. And so it's less it's it's less secure, less certain temporary recruitment, um, ongoing projects, ongoing clients, um, therefore, therefore less risky. And so so that's that, that's historically where it's been uh, over the last couple of years. We've seen um, multiples increase generally in the market and um, recruitment has has been uh, has come along with that. And we've seen higher multiples um, you know, up to, to 10 uh, plus. And, and it's now going back down again. Uh, recruitment, as as you probably very aware, is a sort of a canary in the mine for the uh, for the economy on a sort of wider level. And so, when things start to go wrong in the market, people cut back on recruitment, and therefore multiples drop off in um, in, in in recruitment businesses. But what what clients always always say is, how can we get a higher multiple? What are the sort of things that we need to be pushing in our business to get a higher multiple? One is tech. Uh, if you can, if you have a brilliant bit of tech, a very clever, clever bit of tech, then you can maybe sort of say, well, we're a recruitment business, but we're also a tech business. And that that pushes up your multiple. Obviously, it's very expensive to do, very difficult to do. But if done well uh, and done right, then you can start to, to, to push into those tech company multiples, which give you something quite exciting on a, on a number. Um, some things which depress your multiple might be client concentration. So if you've got a few really big clients, but if you lose one, you know, your, your numbers are going to drop off. That's a concern for people. That's a concern for a buyer that, that, that maybe that relationship might be, you know, might go with you or might, um, you know, change of management in the client. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens. So that, that would make you more risky and therefore a lower multiple um, staff concentration. So if you've got, a few big hitters in your team that are really driving the profits and really driving the the results. What happens if they leave? Everyone knows that recruitment is um, is itself a very hot market for recruitment, and so um, so that that will make you more risky. So um, and, and and the other thing that clients have really tried hard to do, and and with you know when it works, it's great, and 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 it's almost a. a, a an easy, not an easy win, but a, a free win almost if you do it right, is um, building a strong corporate culture um, so that people aren't competing with each other 
so that there's a way of doing things, a best practice in your in your in your team. So so again, what you want to say is if I, the founder, was not here and someone was to come in, you know, if a buyer was to hire someone to replace me as in running this business, straight away there's a there's a shared pool of knowledge in how to go about winning work, a shared pool of knowledge in how to to to, to take that forward. And and you know that's what people have tried to argue gives them a higher multiple because you know, it, it gives them a more solid, robust business that someone's buying. Mm. Can I just point out that you've mentioned multiples of six and seven uh, and eight um, times EBIT. And um, obviously your advice is mainly sought with businesses that have over a five million EBIT. Uh, my experience of businesses sub at five million has been that those you don't get those multiples at the moment. You're more likely to be seeing four to five. Um, would, do you agree? Even even lower, I, yes. I would say. And, and and it's four to five of what as well. So so mm -hmm. what are you what are you multiplying it by? Because it's um it's a uh, um you, you're multiplying your profits, but you have to say well what what would a third party be able to do in your business? So for example, if you're not paying yourself a salary, but you're paying yourself dividends, then after the transaction, assuming you're staying on, you'll be paid a salary. And, mm. and so that will reduce profits. And therefore you'll have to reduce your, your um, what you multiply the profits by by whatever right. they're expecting to pay you or so indeed if they if the buyer has to replace you and yeah, pay a exactly. stonking salary to move somebody in so exactly. so it's ebitda minus replacement cost as it were yeah um, and then the multiple so um just uh, again because i these are misconceptions that i've heard and they tend to you know gather gather um moss just by being repeated a lot um the technology piece is a very interesting one because vanishingly few recruitment businesses have actually got anything other than licenses in somebody else's technology yeah yeah and um where i have seen some big um master service providers or um master vendors as they're often referred to they are, can create their own technology platform um and therefore they own the ip in that um and if it can be shown to give them a competitive advantage, that's hugely helpful. Um, the other piece I was going to mention about depressing value is that liabilities mm. always, in my experience, tend to scare off buyers. Um, and, you know, even at the, you know, the early stages of due diligence, if they perceive there's a risk that if, for example, you or I don't know glossed over the proper implementation of IR35, or yeah. um, you have dubious uh, claims outstanding from former staff, that kind of thing. Um, those can be a real turnoff. Absolutely, no, absolutely, and and other things which can just trip people up are things like well, if you've got someone working remotely from overseas. I mean, it mm -hmm. does happen. Increasingly, happens now, and you think you know. You, you start on a transaction you think it's going to be super super easy and you think oh and they said oh just 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 to let you know my business partner works four days a week from their home in in the netherlands and, and anything oh crikey <laughs> so so um so something like that can just be just a huge a huge amount of work that that and 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 off-putting for a buyer or or if you say 
you know, we've promised this person some shares in the company, but we've never sorted it out. But they all know that, that there's a promise there. And again, that's that's the sort of thing that makes your heart sink if you're doing due diligence. Mm. So forecast wise, um, and I know you won't want me to push you into a forecast, but as you said, recruitment tends to be the um, the canary in the mine. Um, what do you, it, it, yeah, without asking you to put money on it, <laughs> What would you anticipate would happen to valuations of recruitment businesses over the course of the next year? I well, that's that's extremely difficult because if you want, you know, I'm a I am an accountant and tax advisor, and if you want to know sort of the future of the economy, you probably don't ring your tax advisor first. Okay. That said, that said, what what are people in the market saying? Uh, I think people in the market are saying that there are some industries which are expected to to hold up pretty well. You know, uh, financial recruitment, for example, um, that um, there is always um, a shortage uh, of, of people in finance at the moment because there aren't enough people being trained. And so so that sort of so I think it's going to be sector specific, I would say. Mm. Um, I would say things like healthcare as well, you know, um, uh, difficult to see with, with a single payer, in, in particularly in most of the economy, how, that, how that's going to fall off. But in other sectors, um, it will be, I, I imagine it'll be tougher. So, so I, uneven throughout the economy, I would say. Um, oh, and, and, and it really needs to look at who your clients are. Yeah. Yes, the, the, highly, the most highly regulated sectors like healthcare, um, uh, there's, there's never any con concerns about demand there. Um, and the, one of the key factors is efficiency in terms of delivering it, I think, because the margins aren't huge. Now, my particular reason for wanting to speak to you about this was to explain clearly for business owners the tax treatment of a business sale and if you think that there are likely to be changes there so um so yeah yes yeah. so if your business sale is selling shares in a company that you own then um currently the rate of capital gains tax is 20 percent um we have um business asset disposal relief which can reduce the rate of tax down to 10 percent um that is capped at 1 million of lifetime gains. So the value of the relief, um, it takes your tax rate from 20 to 10. So it's a saving of 10% on a million. So it's worth hundred grand. Um, business asset disposal relief, um, and you can cut this if we run out of time, uh, started off uh, in 08 um, and, and was worth 80 grand at that time. Um, it was 18% to 10% and over a million. And so um, lots of people didn't really pay that much attention to it because it was, was only worth 80 grand. And then they bumped it up to 10 million. And all of a sudden, uh, the, the tax saving uh, was, was worth a million pounds. And, and um, lots of accountants got some very angry calls from their clients because why did you set my business up in such a way that I don't get entrepreneur's relief um, when it's a million pounds of tax? And the answer was because it was too small <laughs> to, to, to spend a huge amount of time getting it right at that stage. And, and so there were some difficult conversations. And it's really complicated. There's a huge amount of stuff. Keep it simple is my is my my um, my my advice on business. It's entrepreneurs relief rebranded as business asset disposal relief um, because the legislation is brutally tough. For something which is only worth a hundred grand per, per per individual. But anyway, business asset disposal relief million quid at ten percent and then twenty percent above that. Things which tend to catch people out are earnouts. So uh, quite often a recruitment business will be sold with an earnout. So so it'll be like an amount of cash up front, and then amount of, amount of cash later. Bear in mind that you're probably going to have to pay tax now on that future cash. Um, it is something that people get if the 
the, the buyer will want the earn out to be um, as big as possible um, because they'll delay the amount of time they pay before they pay you. And quite often they'll try and link that future earn out to um, expected sort of expected behavior of the business in future future profits things like that and so that reduces their risk because if they've uh, if they've bought a dud then that reduces the amount they have to pay you but do bear in mind that you have to pay that um probably depending on the structure probably have to pay tax on that future profit now oh. uh, that future payment now so so if you've got a business where you're selling it for just picking some numbers, five million pounds. And um, and that's one million now, and then say four million in three years time, um, assuming you hit certain targets. Well, you're probably gonna have to pay tax on around five million, maybe, maybe a bit less if we can argue it. And tax at 20%, ignoring business asset disposal relief means all of your cash consideration is gonna go on tax. <laughs> so before you buy the villa in Cannes, do, do, do go through that process to understand um, when you're going to have to pay tax and when you're not and and there are sometimes things you can do um in in structuring it to reduce or delay the tax so that that is something that, that comes up a lot okay well thank you you probably saved a lot of people a great deal of disappointment there. um moving on to employees many businesses now want to set up uh, employee share schemes what yeah. um could you just summarize for us adam what the main considerations should be for an owner when they're setting that up yeah yeah sure so there's there's two things i want to sort of say here uh, one is and the first thing um is that when structuring a uh, an employee share arrangement there's kind of three three competing uh desires on, on everybody's on everybody's mind one is that everyone starts the conversation by saying they want it to be simple that's what they so everyone says at the start of a meeting and we all nod and agree and then they say uh, but we want it to be tax efficient uh, which and, and there's a conflict between simplicity and tax efficiency you can you can make things tax efficient but it makes them harder and then the third thing particularly in recruitment um, recruitment is um, a very sort of a serial offender for this is that they want it to be targeted to individual performance so in in other businesses it's much more common for someone to say yep you can have share you can have um, half a percent of the equity or one percent of the equity there you go whereas in recruitment the, the conversation which which always comes up is yeah okay we'll give them up to one percent but they've got to hit these targets and we don't want one percent of the whole business we want one percent of the the manchester office profits not not the whole because otherwise they'll be riding on the coattails of someone else who might be doing very well over here so so and those three aims are in conflict with each other the simplicity tax efficiency and targeting are in conflict with each other and so whenever you're um having these conversations with clients the first thing to do is to resolve that and to work out what they really want to do with those three things. So, for example, the simplest way of um, give, giving equity to, to employees is to give them a share option over, say, 1%. I'm just picking a number, say 1% of the business. Um, and that is uh, very simple, uh, very cheap to set up. It is not tax efficient because um, they'll be subject to income tax when they exercise the share option. And it is not at all targeted to individual performance, but it's but it's simple and quick. We then go from there to sort of level two, which might be an enterprise management incentive share option, which is a special government way, government approved way of creating a share option. It is quite simple. It is very tax efficient, but it's not targeted to individual performance. And then you get into 
iterations of that. So performance criteria and 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 sort of tracker shares and 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 it, and it over and, and the, the the risk is overcomplicating it because so that was the first thing that I wanted to say on on share schemes those three conflicting problems and then the second thing I wanted to say was what can go wrong on on a share scheme how how can it go wrong and it can go wrong firstly um, because you give away too much um, so if you know if you give away 20% of your business, which I've seen, I've seen that um, people do that. That's more than normal, but um, you give away 20% of your business, but then you want to expand and you want to bring in new layers of management. You might feel like you need to, re to reward those people with share options as well. And before you know, before you know it, you're sort of pushing into 30% of your business gone, which is so expensive. So giving away too much too early, I would say would be where it can go wrong. The second thing that can go wrong is um, if it's not, properly paperworked because when when you um, sell your business uh, the buyer will do due diligence and it'll be someone like me who is paid to find things that you've done wrong <laughs> and that's that's what we're in that's what that's what we're paid to do when we do buyer due diligence and we will crawl all over your share scheme and anything that we can do um, to, to find that you've got wrong justifies our fee uh, there you go so so um, so please get it done properly and the second thing is, the third thing, sorry, is that you've got to um, uh, communicate openly and honestly with your staff. If the staff feel that you've given them a share option, but really they're never, or the share, share incentive, they're never really going to benefit from it. They're never really going to turn it into money, or it's not clear to them what the value of that is, or that, then you, you, it's worse than not doing it at all, because then they feel that you're not being straight. So communication with staff making them understand that it's valuable and when and when uh, and what they need to do to, to realize that value i just uh, some a couple of interesting stories spring to mind that illustrate the points you've made um i once consulted with a firm briefly um two uh shareholding business owners and a third director and in, in name only in the room the the third director told me that he owned 20% of the business, um, but he didn't. And right. <laughs> it was all on a promise. Now, perhaps very naive of him to have assumed that no paperwork needed to be involved in all of this. But like you say, that clarity of communication um, can't be taken for granted. Um, and the other point you made about giving away too much too soon. Again, I've been involved on a consultancy basis as a Ned with uh, some businesses who are now within sniffing distance of a, an exit and which is uh, the, the stage at which they've engaged with me and um, in this one particular example it turned out that they'd already given away mm. in effect in share options 10% of their business to the ver their very first employees. Now that business had long since outgrown yeah. their first employees and look I don't doubt for a minute that they wanted to reward and recognize loyalty, but they were a little hamstrung because they now needed to import much more experienced people in over the top of these, um, yeah. uh, these early employees. And consequently, as we've seen what the market's like, they really needed to provide that as a, as a part of the deal yeah. to attract those people. Um, it's like so the Apple I chef, isn't it? The first chef at Apple who got 
hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equity because they paid him in stock early on and you know all right and, and it, yeah. it's divisive isn't it because if you've got an md who's got two percent and you've got a former shareholder who's your mate a, a form you know a, a, a sort of matey early employee with eight then what does them what does the md say you know absolutely it's very it's very it divisive um could we just uh take a little detour briefly into employee ownership trusts yep you know a means of exit that a lot more people are talking about now um mm. could you just what you see as the advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, so so from a um, so the government has had a, a goal of um, improving employee. Uh, uh, they, the, the sort of John Lewis model, the idea that companies behave better um, if they're employed by their workers, is is not a new idea. Uh, it's very popular at the moment in uh, in the Treasury, and so we have this idea of an employee ownership trust. So this is very different to. Um, sort of tax planning around EBTs and EFERBs and stuff like that, which were tax schemes, which were around a few years ago. We still see them, unfortunately, uh, from time to time around to, to sort of avoid tax on income. And an employee ownership trust is a trust set up to buy a company or to buy a, a controlling interest in the company. And it's financed usually by the company itself. So the company makes a gift to the trust um, and the trust uses that money then to buy to buy the shares from the current owners. Um, and the trust is for the benefit of all of the employees, of everybody. And the idea is that, that if it gets money from, say, dividends or something, it then uses that to, to give uh, to give bonuses to, to employees. So, so that's the idea. That why would you do it? Um, because some people do it just because they like the idea. They want to, to they like their employees. They want to sort of you know, create something that, that, that outlives them. Um, they also quite like doing it because it's tax free. So, so if you sell your business to a um, to an EOT or a controlling interest in your business, you pay zero uh, percent capital gains tax. Um, so, with the sort of the gutting of uh, entrepreneurs relief, business asset disposal relief, it's now called. Um, we we didn't see very many of them when everyone was paying ten percent capital gains tax on exits. Now they're, they're paying twenty, and we're starting to hear the odd whisper around tax Twitter, which is a thing um, that tax rates, uh, capital gains tax rates might be a sort of easy target for a chancellor who's looking to raise 40, 50 billion quid uh, in the near future. Um, so we're starting to hear the odd whisper about capital gains tax rises, although not, of, of nowhere near official, um, but there's some chat. Um, EOTs are much, much more popular now. Um, we see a lot of them, partly because they're aggressively sold, I would say. There are, there are businesses out there who, who do go and, and they sell EOTs and they are very slick in the marketing and they're very, I'm sure they're very good at it, they're good at what they do. They're not cheap in terms of the ways that they, uh, in terms of their implementation costs, but you know, that it's a, it's a, they're very good at those, at setting up those structures. Um, and so then the point about them is they're not suitable for everybody and it's hard in, um, recruitment particularly in recruitment to make them stick um it's it's hard for a number of reasons one is because um it's hard for people who were manager shareholders to adjust to a world in which they are they are now just a manager so so you know you've got a business a recruitment businesses quite often are dominated by the founders because it's their vision their creation and they're now no longer the the person who benefits from the business anymore it's for everybody um, and so that that adjustment is quite hard in re in recruitment. Also, um, recruitment businesses tend to 
sort of um, grow quickly and then people move on to the next business. Not in every case, but in many cases, there's not a steady core of people. People tend to move between businesses. And so that's not really something that you end up with a sort of stranded EOT with a, with a business in it that, that it's oh. hard then to, to be as dynamic as I would say for an individual shareholder. And also in, in recruitment, people expect to be given equity in the business they work for. That is much more of a sort of market thing than, than it is in, in many other industries. And so um, you know, it, it's not as exciting to say, oh, you're one among many beneficiaries of this trust. You, people expect to be given equity and quite often they expect to be pointed towards a sale. At some stage mm. so it, it's harder it, I, do, I do i have seen them i have seen recruitment businesses do eot's and some of them have worked but um not not as often interesting okay and and just again for those who may not be familiar with the concept in an eot once the um shareholders sell to the trust um then every employee becomes yeah. a share and, and, and is it possible to then target the equity to particular individuals who are what I've seen, and 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 not a lawyer, not done the not done the legals on it, but what I have seen is that the company then would maybe issue enterprise management incentives, off, so diluting the EOT. I ha I have seen that a number of times, and so yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily the the assets of the trust which are being given specifically to um, to key management. The trust, the trustees, no doubt have a meeting. And in that meeting, they will say, well, if we if we incentivize key management, we will increase the value of our shares. And so we will allow the, the company to issue share options to key staff. So that, that that's what I've seen. OK, um, my exposure to them has been limited. Um, but uh, what I would say is that the, the, the primary motivator for business owners I've met uh, to award e um, e equity to staff is actually to to enhance their loyalty to the business yeah. and their performance and the strange and unexpected effect of EOT was actually that it didn't it wasn't sufficient for pe people to change their behavior and of course it's lost if they leave the company so the owners did not achieve what they'd hoped to in that particular case now thank you Adam if we could just finish by talking for a moment about EIS and SEIS Sure. So I've had a number of, of early stage businesses ask me how they can raise funding through this um, rather than as investors. Yeah. Um, and so I thought a number of our listeners might be um, keen to hear what might be involved. So the rules for enterprise investment scheme and seed, so EIS and seed enterprise investment scheme, SEIS, are quite similar. They're, they're just different enough to trip you up occasionally but very broadly SEIS is the little brother of of EIS these uh, there are sort of uh, a menu of tax reliefs which make share investment not not loans or anything like that plain vanilla share investment in um, unquoted trading companies more attractive to to um, to business angels who, who might be out there looking to back a business and so there's a number of different reliefs you can get so so if someone puts £100,000 into your, into your business, um, then they will get £30,000 of tax back from the government. They'll just get the check. The government writes them a check for thirty grand broadly. They offset it against the income tax bill for the year, but it's the same sort of thing. So, so there's that. Um, when they sell um, the shares in your business, because 
that's normally what it's geared towards. Normally you get the income tax, which is nice, but the, the expectation is that there will be a sale. Um, that's tax-free and they can defer other gains into your company as well. So, so if they've made, I don't know, if they've sold another business or a, a field or something like that, then and realized a capital gain, then they can reinvest into your business and the, the tax on that gain is, is deferred in the case of um, EIS or um, exempt uh, in the case of SEIS. And SEIS is smaller businesses, so businesses up to about 150,000 maximum raise, although that's been raised to Golly, this is a this is a test. 250, 300k in the in the mini budget. So hopefully that will survive uh, the the, the follow-up budget in Halloween. Uh, and whereas in um, EIS, you can raise up to five million a year. So 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 there's different limits. Um, EIS tends to be for for, for larger businesses. Um, however, however, it is a three-year straitjacket. So the the conditions are fairly fearsome. There are conditions that the investor has to meet. Uh, so that they, um, for example, they can't be one of your employees. Um, for EIS, um, slightly different for SEIS, for EIS, they, um, if they're a paid director, there are all sorts of things that they have to do to, to, to make sure they qualify. Um, there's a number of different hurdles that they, that they have to meet, and that's not really your problem as, a, as someone looking to, to raise money. You have to be a qualifying trade. Um, and recruitment is a, is a qualifying trade. You have to spend the money on only certain things. You have to have the, the money has to be. Uh, there's loads of stuff, and, and 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 that lasts for three years. And so you have to basically before you if you raise EIS money before you do any sort of significant business tie-ups or business changes or anything like that, you need to ring your accountant um, yeah. because there are lots of things which can break. Um, can re retrospectively break EIS. So if someone invested in, you, invested in your business a year ago, and then you say, okay, well, I want to do a joint venture with, uh, with a bank or something like that, that, that may well break your investors um, enterprise investment scheme tax relief. And so you'll need to check first, or you'll have quite a difficult conversation with your, with your investor. There's also a huge amount of reporting that needs to happen. Um, there's, a, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of um, hoops to jump through before your investor gets their, um, gets their check from the government. So imagining now that I am the owner of a small recruitment business, yeah. and I happen to know someone who is wealthy okay. enough to take advantage of it by investing in me. A, can they, can they nominate that they want to invest in my company? So, so, at, at heart, EIS is your investor being issued with new shares in your company. They can't buy existing shares in the market. They have to be new shares. And what, what you do is, is probably three, three things. The first thing, you, which you don't have to do, but everybody does it, is you write to HMRC. It's called an advanced assurance application. And they confirm that your business qualifies for, um, for, for EIS relief. Um, you, you don't have to do it, but if you don't do it, you'll probably get an inquiry um, shortly. Uh, so so it, almost everybody does it. And also the investor may say to you, and perhaps will say to you, I'm only going to invest if you've got this confirmation from HMRC. Mm. Uh, that takes about a month. Um, but the problem with that is about 80% of them go through on the nod. Um, the rest don't so you want to make your application as good as possible to get it into the 80 percent because if you don't i mean hmrc are super busy and they will they would take a month to reply to every letter 
So mm-hmm. if they say no, or they ask you, or even if they ask you questions, that might take a couple of weeks to get the, the information together. Then it'll be another month before um, you hear from HMRC. So we're now at two and a half months. The inspector is now interested and excited by your by your company. Now wants to really take a take a close look at it. It might take two or three more letters. It can take six months to get a right. response in that case. So really, advice for your listeners would be to make sure that ap- that application is as good as they can make it, um, and that it covers all the bases and, it, and it, it's open about weaknesses. If there are risks or weaknesses in their, in their application, which might apply to that company, address them head on in the, uh, in the application um, to make sure, because you don't want, if HMRC think of it, then you're into a, a long process. But what are the criteria that a business has to fulfill to, to get funded by a Well, so, so, um, there is there's, there's loads of them so so there's things like there's the age of the trade if the trade's been going on for more than uh seven years uh you you can't do eis or you, or you unless you've done it before um there are limits to number of employees there are limits to gross assets on your balance sheet there are limits to turnover there are limits to uh, you have to be a qualifying trade and not carrying out non-qualifying activities you have to have not done certain things with the share capital for the last few years. So, so there's 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 lots. <laughs> there's lots. It's it's a golden straitjacket, is is EIS. It makes you very, very much more attractive to investors. Because if you think about it, um someone puts a hundred grand into your business and say you lose it all, you 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 just go bankrupt in that year. Um they've already had 30 grand of their investment back. So that's they've they're only set on risk for 70. And if they tick all of the other boxes for EIS, about another 20, 30 uh, gets covered by um, tax relief. So actually, half of their investment risk is being, um, and more than that, actually, when you do the numbers, is being covered by the government. With SEIS, it's above 80% of, mm. the, of the investment risk. So it makes it, that makes it a much easier conversation to have with a potential investor. Obviously, you don't start a conversation with an investor, with an investor saying, if I lose all your money, but, but should it arise, um, it, it, it makes that conversation much, much easier. Mm, okay. So anyone thinking about it should probably consult with uh, yeah. someone like Humphreys as soon as possible. I, it, um, so we're going to get to a, a close there. Sure. Adam, thank you very much for joining me today. And I think you've just mm. pointed out that uh, there are complications to all of these arrangements that really do require professional advice. If any listeners um, want to contact you or Safri's, how should they do that, Adam? Uh, info at safri.com um, would be would be the, the um, easiest way of doing it. Um, we've got, depending on what you want to talk about, um, so that, then that would go to the right person. So we have not we have a some big specialty at Safri's in recruitment. We have a couple of partners who know the industry inside out. I stand behind them with a big stick. And every time they say something about tax, I give them a whack over the head. So if it's a tax question, it might come to me. If it's a sort of accounting and audit question, it might go to one of those guys. So info at Safri's. Okay. But you will will be able to talk to partners and other advisors who really understand the recruitment yeah. industry. Yeah. Um, so Adam, thank you very much for joining me. Um, finance and the financial options are just part of the big picture of how to build and create a a successful and valuable business. Um, And if you're interested in talking to me, Alison Humphreys, about non-exec advisory work, um, please get in touch using alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Adam. Thanks a lot. 
you've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.